All right. Well, hey, come on back and uh, we'll grab our Bibles. And then we're going to turn to, well, we're going to start in Jeremiah 11 for tonight. I'll read it, a little bit of it, and then we're going to jump around, surprise, surprise, right? And uh, so uh, hopefully that'll be uh, a blessing to you all. Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 11 of the book of Jeremiah. Here's what it says, the word of the Lord. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and say to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant, which I commanded your fathers in the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace saying, obey. My voice and do according to all that I command you. So shall you be my people and I will be your God that I may establish the oath which I have sworn to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. And here's the important sentence and you might not think so, but here it is. And I answered and said, so be it, Lord, circle that or just circle it in your mind, whatever. Then the Lord said to me, proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I earnestly exhorted your fathers in the day I brought them up out of the land of Egypt unto this day, rising early and exhorting, saying, obey my voice. Yet they didn't obey or incline their ear, but everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart. Therefore, I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but which they have not done. And the Lord said to me, a conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words, and they have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Therefore, verse 11... Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will surely bring calamity on them, which they will not be able to escape. And though they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods to whom they offer incense. But they will not save them at all in the time of their trouble. For according to the number of your cities were your gods, O Judah, and according to the number of the streets of Jerusalem... You have set up altars to that shameful thing, altars to burn incense to Baal. So don't pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them. Isn't that fascinating? Three times in the book of Jeremiah, he tells uh, Jeremiah not to pray for the people. Interesting. For I will not hear them in the time that they cry out to me because of their trouble. 15, what has my beloved to do in my house, having done lewd deeds with many, and the holy flesh has passed from you? When you do evil, then you rejoice. The Lord called your name, green olive tree, lovely and of good fruit. With the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire on it, and its branches are broken. For the Lord of hosts who planted you has pronounced doom against you. For the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves, to provoke me to anger in offering incense to Baal. Now the Lord, verse 18, gave me knowledge of it, and I know it, for you showed me their doings. 
But I was like a docile or docile lamb brought to the slaughter, and I did not know that they had devised schemes against me, saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. Excuse me. But, O Lord of hosts, you who judge righteously, testing the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have revealed my cause. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth, who seek your life, saying, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, lest you die by our hand. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine, and there shall be no remnant of them. For I will bring catastrophe excuse me, to the men of Anathoth, even the year of their punishment. Well, here's where we find ourselves. Last two times, at least, that I've been teaching in the book of uh, Jeremiah, because I had a little, um, I was away for a week there. Anyway, the last two times, we have been studying what were called the temple sermons of Jeremiah. Now, if you want to know Jeremiah and understand Jeremiah, I think uh, one uh, pastor says it's best. Jeremiah is not necessarily chronological. It's a scrapbook of all of Jeremiah's ministry. And here we kind of see that. Here uh, in chapter 11, we've gone from the temple sermons, which was, uh, think about it, Jeremiah standing on the steps of the temple as the people were rushing in to go and worship during the festivals. And he was proclaiming this message of judgment and including message of judgment against the um, leaders of Judah, the spiritual and political leaders of which is his family. So he had been reclaiming these on the steps. That's not what this is. This, at least chapter 11 and chapter 12, deal with this idea of covenant, of covenant. So you should be, and I should be, and we should be clear on what covenants have taken place. So let's just think of a few covenants. Maybe you want to jot them down. In Genesis 12, verses 1 and 3, There was a covenant that God made with Abraham, and what God said is, you leave your area, come to uh, uh, your your, your, uh, territory, and you come to the land of Canaan, and I'm going to bless, you know, all the nations of the world to be blessed through your line and grow through your line, and I want you to know, I want you to write this down. When you go to make a covenant now or a contract uh, say I went to, over to one of the Bobs and I want him to fix my car. What we would say was, hey, Bob, uh, Bob or Bob, uh, you, you fix my car, and then when you're done fixing my car, I'm going to give you some money. So both sides have a duty to perform. You get that? They have a duty to fix my car, whatever's wrong with it, and in exchange For their promise to do what they promised, I promised then to give them currency or money. That's a a two-way covenant or a two-way contract. You see that? See, with the covenant with Abraham or the Abrahamic covenant, it was unconditional. God just said, you're the guy I chose, and I'm going to bless the world through your line. It's unconditional, folks. So that, and by the way, he confirms that covenant with Isaac, Genesis 26, and he confirms that, uh, the covenant with Jacob, 
Genesis 35. You ever wonder why the Bible is always saying the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Hmm, interesting, because it's reminding us or the readers that God made a covenant, a grace, a covenant of grace with that family, you see. You getting that? Okay, so that's a covenant, but that's a different covenant than we're used to because it was a unilateral covenant. Now, it's important today because who owns the land over there? (laughs) See, God gave Israel the land, and it's unconditional, folks. So I'll just leave it at that. That's a sermon for another day, but it's the reason I'm making a big deal of it is the Abrahamic covenant or Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. Well, let's uh, think about another covenant. That is the covenant with Abraham. That happened, uh, uh, you know, in 2000s BC or so. I'm going to give you the years because I want you to know the years of where we are when we get to Jeremiah chapter 11. How about this covenant in Exodus 19 and 20? Everybody knows what's in Exodus 20, I hope. The Ten Commandments. And who did God give the commandments to? He gave the commandments to Moses to give to the people. And that's generally called the Mosaic Covenant or the Covenant or or the uh, Sinai Covenant. It's the same thing, two different titles. That's more of a conditioning conditional covenant, or excuse me, a two-way covenant, right? Or a conditional covenant. You do good stuff, you'll get good stuff back, right? You'll be blessed. And there is, even today, a general principle. You walk in the ways of the Lord. Of course, your life doesn't, isn't necessarily going to be, but you're going to have inner peace and strength. So, so we're all on the same page there. But back then, the covenant, Mosaic covenant, was you do this, I'll bless you. If you don't obey the covenant, right? Things will happen. Okay, that's the Mosaic Covenant. That took place in about 1446 B.C. Well, this uh, Mosaic Covenant then is reviewed in what book? It means twice read. Deuteronomy. When the nation of Israel, after 430 years or so, comes up out of Egypt, does some wilderness wandering. They get right up to the edge of the promised land. And uh, Moses reviews the covenant. Now, I've got to show you something. I know this is a long introduction, but when you get this, you're going to be blown away by Jeremiah 11, man. So Deuteronomy 27, go there, 27, 28, 29, and 30 in Deuteronomy is when Moses reviews the law with the people before they enter in to the promised land. And chapter 27 in my Bible here says the law is inscribed upon stones. And then later on down in chapter 27, this is so amazing. It's such an unusual story. Don't you love the Old Testament? Here, Moses commanded the people on this day, verse 11, chapter 27, go and stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people when you have crossed over the Jordan, etc., etc. And, uh, and these shall stand on Mount Ebal, verse 13, to curse Reuben Gad. So what he did was he split up the families of God. On one mountain, they were going to pronounce the blessings. Are you catching that? On the other mountain, Ebal, the other tribes were going to pronounce the curses. You all tracking with me? And what's very interesting is 
the lead, look down here in verse uh, six, uh, 15. Look down in verse 15. Cursed. I don't know about you, but when I read this, I'm like, man, don't start with the curses. Let's get to the blessings. But they start with the curses. Curses is the one who makes a carver molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsman, and sets it up in secret. Look at this. Watch this. Watch. And all the people shall answer and say, so be it. We agree. Okay. Amen. In other words, we're accepting the covenant again. And they go on and on and on, curse upon curse upon curse. And what do the people say at the end of each one? Amen. Amen. Okay. We accept. Who wants to accept those terms, folks? <laughs> and yet they do. And then you go on into chapter 28, and there's some blessedness with obedience. And you can remember that. And I'm just trying to remind you that this took place. And then in chapter 28 verse 15, there's some curses on disobedience again. And this goes on and on and on. The covenant chapter 29 is renewed in Moab. And then you get through chapter 30, the blessing of returning to God. And you get to Joshua, who becomes the new leader of Israel. Everybody tracking with me? Okay. Moses reviews the covenant in Deuteronomy. That happened in about 1407 BC. Later in Joshua chapter 8, we won't turn there. Joshua then, when they get inside the promised land, he reaffirms that covenant. He, he talks to them about the covenant again. So this is very interesting, right? The, you're, you're looking at me with glazed look, but it's relevant today. Abrahamic covenancy gives them to the, uh, the right to own the land. The Mosaic covenant gives them the right to possess and enjoy the land. You might want to write that down. And the reason I'm saying you might want to write that down, because it's so relevant today. What we're just talking about is the reason that everybody's fighting over Israel right now. All right. But what I want you to see, too, now, is I want you to know that they're covenant people, but for a long time, Joshua reaffirmed the covenant in 1406 B.C., but Jeremiah, listen guys and gals, didn't start prophesying till 640 B.C. I know, I'm going through a lot of history. But the first king, do you remember who it was, who he prophesied under? was a little eight-year-old boy named Josiah. And after 18 years, something happens. And you can turn there to 2 Kings, do it, 23. It's also found in... Uh, Chronicles, I believe 2 Chronicles 34, but we're going to go to 2 Kings 23, and I want you to see something. Actually, over in 22, Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the scribe, I have found the book of the law. Now think about that. For all those years, from 1406 to BC to 640 BC, what happened to the covenant? They'd forgotten about it. The books went away. They didn't read the law. Are you catching this? And Hilkiah, the high priest, under Josiah, nobody but me is getting excited about this. And I'm going to tell you, you're going to be so excited about this when you put all the pieces together. What's Jeremiah's father's name? Hilkiah. 
And they find the book of the covenant, right? And the little guy, king, tears his clothes. What do you mean we haven't been doing this? How come, why didn't people do this for all these years? So he reinstitutes all these reforms. And he restores true worship. And look in 23. Then the king, verse 3, stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statute with all his heart and his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. Here it comes. Watch. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. In other words, they agreed to the covenant. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because Jeremiah chapter 11 probably is written, it's a prophecy in response to the backdrop of them being a covenant people who have just been read the law again after all these years and their king comes out and says, we're going to do all this stuff. And we find ourselves then in chapter 11, where the word came to Jeremiah saying, hear the words of this covenant. You're like, okay, I know, the, I know what it's talking about now. They just read this to the people. There is a backdrop of a covenant, all these covenants that God has with the people of Israel, Judah. And then there's also, in 2 Kings 23, during Josiah's reign, they just found the book. They're rereading the covenant. And it says, hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants. Say to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel. Can you imagine? You're on the edge of your seat. Okay, I'm Jeremiah. Oh, Lord, you're gonna, okay, what do I say to them? And the first word God tells them to, says to tell them is, tell them it's, they'll be cursed if they don't follow it. And you say, oh, my goodness. It says, cursed is the man. Cursed is the man who does not obey the words of the covenant which I commanded your fathers in the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, obey. So if you don't obey the covenant, obey my voice and do according to all that I command, so you shall be my people and I will be your God. Now, I underlined that about 20 times in my Bible. And here's the reason I did. You know when it says that we have an inheritance that's incorruptible? You know what ultimately the inheritance is? Don't ever forget this. It's being in the presence of the Lord forever. You know, when we get to heaven, the new heavens and the earth, it's, he says, they're going to be my people and I'm going to be their God. I'm going to live among them, man. It's the presence of the Lord that we're after. That's what we're doing here. That's why we're here. We're seeking the presence of the Lord. That's where we're healthiest and safest, right? Ultimately, yes, but even now we want the presence of the Lord. And here's, that's inheritance. I, that's, that's at the end of all of this. That's what we're about is the, glorifying the Lord, being in the presence of the Lord, that I may establish the oath which I have sworn to your fathers. Folks, there is... Are you insecure? Don't raise your hand. But if, are you? There's no greater security in the, the, anywhere than to know that you belong to God. That's what, that's what junior hires need to know. But by the way, <laughs> junior hires turned into adults. That's what we need to know. 
There's no greater security than knowing that we belong to God. And one pastor says there's no greater inheritance than for God to belong to us. That's what that verse is saying. It's so beautiful. That's the end of the whole Bible. That's the last chapter of the Bible. He'll live with us. We'll live with him. That I may establish the oath flowing with milk and honey as if is this day. Or as it is this day, sorry. And I answered and said, listen to this. Do you, do you understand what Jeremiah just said on behalf of himself and on behalf of the people? Okay, Lord, we accept. Now think about it. If they don't obey, they're cursed. They're cursed. <laughs> don't you know that this is just what it's like with the Lord. This is just a picture of the Lord. You understand that, right? Is that you get that at the end of the law is death, a curse, right? At the end of the law is death. The penalty for the law, for the breaking of the law, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The standard is here. And the Bible says, right, all short falls glory to God. Here's where we are. And we can't make our way up to heaven. We have to, in order to be living with a holy God, we have to be righteous and holy ourselves. And so we, and so we, isn't it interesting that we're striving and straining in our religion to get up to here but there's something that we could never do, and that's be good enough or be holy enough. And so along comes a Savior, watch this, who lives a perfectly sinless life in perfect harmony with the law of God. And he takes, in essence, you know, the difficulty out of the law of God, because he lived perfectly, it's still difficult for us, but he then takes the punishment of the law, the curse, and the curse of the law is death. You know this, right? Don't you? That in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, as part of the law, it said this, that anybody who's hanged on a tree is, is accursed. It says that in Deuteronomy. Anybody who's hanged on a tree is cursed. Romans tells us that the law is both sin and death. There's death in the law because we can't keep it. But then you start to think about Jesus, Last Supper sort of things, as he marches to that place where he's going to give up his life, Garden of Gethsemane. He's in the garden. Lord, if there's any other way, could you take this cup? What's the cup? It's the cup of wrath, the wrath that's going to be poured out on him, God's wrath for the sins of the world. If there's any other way that you could... And then he says this. Do you know what he says? He says, but I'll agree to the covenant. Not my will, 
That's what he's saying. I'll agree to the covenant, not my will, thy will be done. So here's the point. Jesus said yes, in a sense, to the curse. (laughs) He became sin for us. No, he didn't actually become sin, but our sin was imputed unto him, the sins of the world. Are Are you catching this? He moved through the sin that we never could move through or get beyond by saying yes to the curse. In his death, he says, yes, I'll accept the curses and defeat them so that I can die and rise again. And when I do, you'll have the blessings. Now, how do I know that? Because there's a verse about it. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is a verse we all should remember and know. Look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 20. And it goes, let's go in 18. But as God is faithful, our, your, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no. But listen, but in him was yes. Here it comes. Watch this. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him so be it, or amen, to the glory of God through us. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. When, when we have curses thrown our way, we fight back. We start to think, okay, now how can I get my arguments up and I'll defend myself and then... Poof. See, when the curse was coming upon Jesus, the Bible tells us he closed his mouth for the greater good. And that greater good was he was going to die. He said, yes, or so be it to the curses. Watch this. So that now he can say yes, or he does say yes, not that he can. He does say yes to all the promises. I don't think you're getting it. And here's why I don't think you're getting it. Anybody here ever, don't raise your hand, ever feel lonely? Jesus says, I'll never, for leave, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And that's a yes. <laughs> and you could just go on and on and on. You weary and heavy laden? I will give you rest. Yes, I will give you rest. Because I, Jesus says, encompassed or took upon all the uh, clauses, so to speak, of the whole contract. I took the curses, I moved through them and defeated them, and now I can say yes to all the blessings. That should, see, that would radicalize, (laughs) or rattle, be radically change our prayer life, man. And I'm not talking about name it, claim it stuff. I'm talking about standing in the promises of God when we pray and we know that Jesus doesn't want any to perish, but that all should come to eternal life and have repentance, right? Isn't that beautiful? Here, there's this broken covenant. And Jeremiah says, so be it, Lord. Jesus said, so be it, Father. 
so that they'll be blessed. Wow, what a blessing. Then the Lord, look at this in verse 6, said to me, proclaim in the cities and in the streets. Hear the words and do them. I exhort your fathers. And the day I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, you getting this now because you have the backdrop of the covenant to obey their voice. Yet they didn't. Everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart, you see. Isn't that the problem in the book of Judges? They all did what was right in, the, in their own eyes. They didn't do what was right in the sight of the Lord. Every judge, right? Or every, you know, come on, help us, help us. It's just like us, right? Come on, Lord, help us. Send us somebody to help. Okay, great. They help you, and then off they go, and they get haughty and prideful again, and then the Lord has to bring them low, and they, oh, okay, Lord, we'll repent. Of course, just send us another judge. And they do, and it's the same pattern over and over, and it says that they just did evil and in their own eyes, right? And this is similar. They followed the dictates of their evil heart. Therefore, I'm going to bring all the words of this covenant, which I commanded to do, but, or, uh, but which they have not done. I will bring upon them all the words. And the Lord said to me, a conspiracy, conspiracy. They've turned back to the iniquities of their fathers who refused to hear my words. So watch their problems. Let's think about their problems. They were stiff-necked or prideful. They just refuse to listen. And they have gone after other gods. They set up idols in their hearts. And we've ta- we're going to talk about this almost every week in Jeremiah. They're prideful. Who here is prideful? I'm chief. Who here puts idols in their hearts? John Calvin said humans are idol factories. Human hearts are idol factories. I think he's right. And especially here in America. And on and on it goes. So here, my words, and they've gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah, they've broken the covenant. Therefore, says the Lord, I'll bring the calamity on them, which they won't be able to escape. Of course, he's going to bring about the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And the cities of Judah and the inhabitants will go and cry out to the gods to whom they offer incense. But they won't save them at all in their time of trouble. That's what happens to our idols. We depend upon them. We lean on them. We um, worship them. And in time of trouble, they leave you wanting. And I dare say would leave you sick or even dead. They can do nothing for you. Beauty. Image. Power. Money. Status, sex, entertainment, online, just being online, being a gamer, sports, music, just we could go on and on and on. And all of them, in the time of trouble, leave you wanting. There's nothing. They're like cotton candy. They're just nothing and leaves you sick. For according to the number of your cities were your gods. Listen to that. They were just so many, Judah. And according to the number of the streets, there's so many altars. They fill the streets, burning incense to Baal. So God says, Jeremiah, we're not gonna, I don't want you to pray for them. And we talked about that at length last time. He doesn't pray for them because it's past that time and the judgment is coming. But what was my beloved to do in my house? Notice that he calls Israel his beloved, still his bride. But they did lewd deeds. How would you feel if your 
spouse did lewd deeds with others. And the holy flesh has passed from you. And when you do evil, then you rejoice. The Lord called your name. What did he call them? Well, he refers to them in uh, different places, Romans 11 and other places, as you know, an olive tree, the green olive tree, lovely and of good fruit. That was their trajectory. That's where Judah was heading to be alive and producing and fruitful. But it's a fire has been kindled and its branches are broken. They are under the curse of the law too. And so judgment is going to come. For the Lord of the hosts who planted you has pronounced doom, right? We know that's coming. Now the Lord, verse 18, gave me knowledge of it. This is a fascinating piece of scripture. Do you get that the Lord somehow told Jeremiah that there were people scheming against him? So much so that if uh, you look over in the 16th verse uh, of chapter 12, I think it's the 6th verse, yeah, the 6th verse of chapter 12, look who else is scheming, not just the men or women of the city, but also their bro- his brothers and his father. His family has turned against him. So the Lord gave me knowledge that you showed me their doings. I was like a lamb brought to the slaughter, and I didn't know that they had devised schemes against me, saying, let us destroy the tree. They want to kill him. They want to... Re- you know, get rid of him. Let us cut him off from the land of the living that his name may be remembered no more. Now, folks, I don't know, maybe. You ever been rejected by f- uh, friends? That's hurtful. You ever been rejected by family? And they don't want to just reject him. They want to kill him. And I want you to see why there's such antagonistic or antagonism between them. It's because these people are upset that he's preaching the truth. Hmm. Wow. He's only telling what God has told him to tell, right? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the man of Anathoth. Now, what do we know about Anathoth? Well, in the first chapter of Jeremiah, we know that's his hometown. So, it's the people, not just the people... In general, but it's the people of his hometown who want to harm him. They seek your life and they say, don't prophesy in the name of the Lord lest you die by your hand. Uh, Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I'll punish them. The young men shall die. Daughters shall die by famine and there shall be no remnant. I'll bring catastrophe on the man of Anathoth, even the year of their punishment. Now, this is interesting. It switches course a little bit. So, Jeremiah here, praying to the Lord, his life's being threatened, shows his human side. He says, well, Lord, okay, but why do you allow false prophets and unfaithful uh, priests to prosper? Righteous are you, Lord, when I plead with you, yet let me talk with you about your judgments. (laughs) Isn't that funny? It's not funny, it's scary. It's like Jeremiah is saying, hey, Lord, I need a word with you. Scary place to be. And remember in Job, when Job would sort of get in this mode, what would the Lord do? 
the Lord would ask him questions back. In fact, in one chapter, the Lord asked him 77 straight questions. Watch what happens. Righteous are you, Lord. Now, let me talk with you about your judgments. (laughs) Oh, boy. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? We've dealt with this several times. You have planted them. Yes, they have taken root. They grow. Yes, they bear fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. But you, O Lord, know me and have seen me, and you have tested my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare for them for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither? The beasts and birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there because they said he will not see our final end. You've seen this several times. I alluded to it before. In Job 12, he talked about this a lot. In Psalm 37 and uh, other Psalms, but especially Psalm 73, which is very famous for asking these very questions. A couple other minor prophets asked these questions, Habakkuk and Malachi. And remember, one of the things that we said is we have to get out of our minds, is that suffering is not negative for the Christian. Boy, is that hard to say sometimes. But for the Christian, suffering isn't a bad word or a bad concept. In fact, the Bible speaks of it in um, uh, uh, growing terms, in terms of you're going to grow more in Christ-like through your suffering. And the other thing that we said, just very quickly, is we shouldn't be asking the question, you know, things like, why do bad things happen to good people? We shouldn't ask that question. The question we should ask is, why does anything good happen to all of us who are bad? See the difference? The Bible says we're destined and deserve hell, and yet by God's grace, here we stand right here with a relationship with the Lord, going to live with him forever. The question isn't, why does bad things happen to good people? The real question is, why does anything good happen to us who are bad? But here he asks them, and uh, it's a well-discussed uh, argument or a discussed question throughout the Old Testament. Um, and he says, prepare them for the day of slaughter. He, he wants to pray upon God's vengeance. But we know from the New Testament, what are we to do? Like Jesus, keep our mouths and say, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, to give it over to the Lord. I believe, I really do, I believe any of us can forgive anyone, watch this, for anything in the context of our relationship with the Lord. Are you catching that? Any of us as Christians can forgive anyone of anything in our context with our relationship with the Lord. I'm saying those things on purpose because I know how difficult it is to forgive people for some of the heinous things that have been done. But remember, God is good and he's working out all the things in your life for good purposes. And vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not your job to penalize the people that you want to penalize. That's the Lord's job. So we can forgive. And here, Jeremiah prays for vengeance. The Lord just says to us, listen, 470 times, man, if they they do things against you 470 times, forgive them all 470. Because you are a new creation, a forgiving person, 
I'll deal with the justice, the Lord says. Takes the pressure off, right? Still hard, still difficult, I know. You're saying, well, you're telling me to forgive and forget? Okay, I'm going to go out a limb here. There's a different thing there. There's a difference between reconciliation and forgiveness. Forgiveness is one thing. It frees up your soul. Reconciliation is another thing. That's going to take time and trust and consistency. But forgiveness, all of us can forgive anyone for anything in our context for relationship with our Lord. Well, you keep going, and it says here in verse 5, amazing, very, very famous. Who here like me is getting old to the end of their earthly life? Here I am. Watch this. And what do we always say? Man, when I get uh, retired, I'm just going, you know, I, I used to think, seriously, I was just going to find myself on a golf course and play golf and just relax all the time. Well, God shoots that down right here. He says to Jeremiah, if you've run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain? That actually could mean jungle or thick brush of the Jordan. For even your brothers, the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Yes, they have called a multitude after you and do not believe them, even though they speak smooth words to you. If you listen, what, what happens here is here, here's, here's what the Lord always does, I'm convinced. He he does this a lot with you and with me. We start to feel sorry for ourselves. We've been doing ministry. We get grumpy and we complain about stuff. Oh my goodness, I can't believe she she didn't show up to help me today. And you you know that crustiness you can start to feel in service. And you say things like this. Why does that one prosper and I get all the bad jobs? Or why do they live at that house and I don't? Or why do they have this car or this job or this money and I don't? And you start to feel sorry for yourself, just like Jeremiah. And here's what the Lord always does. He starts to talk to you a little bit. He's so sweet and he's so wonderful, but he's so firm. He just comes back with a question. Here it is. If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? You're like, what? What does that mean, man? And what he's saying here is this. If you're running with just footmen, people, and you're trying to run with them and you're maybe trying to race with them or whatever you're doing, you're just working with them or whatever, and they worry or weary you, well, how are you going to walk and have energy and do the things that I want you to do when I put you in the arena with horses? Do you know this? What he's saying here is, to me, God's life for his servants isn't easy or always easy. Now I know uh, his commandments are not burdensome. So we have this inner peace, of course. And yet the Bible says if you run with the footmen and they wear you, how can you contend with the horses? In fact, the Lord's saying this right here. A life in God's service isn't always easy. And I don't know if you catch this, but the farther you go with the Lord, I got good news for you. The more difficult it gets. Am I saying it or is he saying it? Yeah, the Lord's saying it. There's something that, do you ever think about the things that the Lord's putting you through right now? 
He's putting you through in, in situations right now, and he's building something amazing in you, Christ-likeness. But you know something? He's got his eyes, so to speak, over the horizon for the next thing that he wants to send you to. And that might be even, even more a difficult thing, but the, here's the point. He's going to take it and make beauty out of ashes. And he wants you to be in participating in that, and yet here we are, you know, we, we just can't even tie our shoes yet. And and he's just saying, man, when you get over the tie and the shoes, I know it's very difficult for you, but I'm going to send you with the horses. I got something great for you. There's no retiring in the Christian life. Are you kidding me? You get up every morning, whether you have a job or you retired, you already have the pension in your pocket or whatever. The Lord's got another adventure for us. If you've run with the footmen and they've wearied you, then how can you contend with the horses? It just changes Jeremiah's perspective. Whoa, hold on here. I'm looking inside myself. I'm feeling sorry for myself. Why do the wicked prosper and I don't? And yet you've got another adventure for me, Lord? Yes. He recalibrates Jeremiah right here spiritually. And that's what he, do, he does with us. What's the best way? Well, it's to wait upon the Lord. Isaiah 40. We're going to fly like eagles or upon the eagle's wing. We'll, we'll, we'll run and we won't grow weary, man. See it? Is when we wait upon the Lord. Well, here in verse 7, I have forsaken my house. I have left my heritage. I have given my dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. My heritage is to me like a lion in the forest. Remember Genesis 49.9? Judah was the lion of the tribe of Judah. My heritage is to me like a lion in the forest. It cries out against me. Therefore, I have hated it. God has come to the place where judgment is roaring against the lion of the tribe of Judah. My heritage is to me like a speckled vulture. The vultures are all around or against her. Come assemble all the beasts of the field and bring them to devour. Do you think that's harsh language? Well, let me just make a couple observations. Do you see how sin and my sin and your sin and our sin pains the Lord? (laughs) It's a serious issue. See, in today's culture, at least what I've been brought up in, we joke about sin. We laugh about it. I can even hear parents laughing about the sins of their kids. Ha <laughs> you believe that? And we think it's funny. See, our sins right here, as you can see it, is painful to God. And the other thing that I think this, what we've been reading so far here is, or it tells you, is remember that God's gone through these things and he he has empathy for us. He sympathizes with us like Hebrews tells us. He understands our sufferings. What do you mean? Here you have the people of Anathoth, including his family, ready to kill him and he has questions like you and I do and the Lord comes back to him and recalibrates and says to me that not only are sins painful to God, but by the same token, God 
He, he, he goes through the things you have in Jesus. Jesus has done everything we've done, He's, but n- never sinned. He's been tempted in all points just like you. He, that's such a, a, a comforting scripture because he understands what I'm going through. When you're in a hard time, don't you often say this, but you don't understand. Well, Jesus understands. Many rulers, verse 10, have destroyed my vineyard. Now he's talking about the loss of the land. They've trodden my portion underfoot. They've made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They've made it desolate. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate because no one takes it to heart. The plunderers have come. Now the enemy first attacked. They Remember, they came in three waves, Babylon did. The ultimate wave was in 586 B.C. They came, you know, in the 60, I don't know, whatever, above 604, 605, They came in 597, and then they ultimately came and wiped them out in 586. But they've come on the desolate heights, for the sword of the Lord will devour from one end of the land to the other. No flesh shall have peace. They've sown wheat, but reaped thorns. They've put themselves to pain, but don't profit. But be ashamed of your harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Verse 14, chapter 12. Thus says the Lord against all my evil neighbors who touch the inheritance which I have caused my people to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them out of their land and pluck out the house of Judah from among them. Then it shall be after I've plucked them out. Here it comes. It's always, there's always a thread in here. Grace. Redemption that I will return and have compassion on them and bring them back, everyone to his heritage and everyone to his land. And it shall be if they will learn carefully the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, as they taught my people to swear by by all, then they shall be established in the midst of my people. But if they don't obey, I'll utterly pluck up and destroy that nation, says the Lord. You say, well, quit. I'm not going to. We're going to do this sash. So the Lord said to me, go and get yourself a linen sash. Isn't that fascinating? Here comes the action sermon. And put it around your waist, but don't put it in water. So I got a sash according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. Now, there was a sash or a belt for the priest, but not a prophet in Leviticus 16. But the word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, take the sash that you acquired, which is around your waist which is around your waist, and arise and go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a hole in the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates. You know how far the Euphrates is, folks? That's like a long way up there. (laughs) Hundreds and hundreds of miles, the Euphrates, from Judah. You're like, what? So I went and hid it by the Euphrates. Now it came to pass after many days that the Lord said, Now go to the Euphrates and take from there the sash which I commanded you. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the sash from the place where I had hidden it, and there was the sash ruined. It was profitable for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, In this manner I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem, the evil people who refuse to hear my words, who follow the dictates of their heart and walk after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be just like this sash, which is profitable for nothing. For as the sash clings to the waist of men, so I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me. See, that's the point of the sash. He wanted you to get a picture of what he always wanted it to be, a closeness around the waist of God, a, 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 a clinging to God, a, 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 in his presence, being there and being beautiful and clean and precious. And in this story, you see, we see 
something that is supposed to be the best that there can be become the worst. Are you catching that? Okay, file that away. And the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord, that they may become my people for renown, for praise, and for glory that they would not hear. And therefore, watch this, you shall speak them this word. Oh, good. He probably saying that wasn't very fun. Thus says the Lord of God of Israel, every bottle shall be filled with wine, and they will say to you, do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine? Then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness, and I will dash them one against another, even the fathers and sons together, says the Lord. I will not pity nor spare nor have mercy, but will destroy them. Do you see this? The people of Judah was the wine or were the wine, not the drinkers in the story. They were the wine itself. And you see, this is another picture of something that is supposed to be good and joyful and alive and fruitful and the best, and it becomes the worst. The bottles crash into each other and destroy one another. Okay, hold on. Well, hear and give ear in verse 15. Do not be proud. In other words, repent. For the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he causes darkness and before your feet stumble on the dark mountains. Man, you know what's amazing when you go to the mountains? There's something called the golden hour. It's when the sun is still up in the sky but getting ready to go down over the earth. Yeah, over the horizon. And there's this glow that is so incredible. People just flock to it and go look and stay for the golden hour, right? And what the Lord is saying here is, you're going to miss totally out on the golden hour. And it's going to be dark and you'll be stumbling and you're going to take something that was beautiful and wonderful and it's going to go pitch black. He turns it into the shadow of death and makes it dense darkness. Verse 17, but if you will not hear it, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. In other words, it's best to repent. Pride goes before a fall. Could you repent? But if you're not going to, my eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Say to the king and to the queen mother, he's speaking here to possibly King Jehoiakim and his mom Nehushta. Some believe it's the, one of the other kings that Jeremiah prophesied at the time, but whatever, king and queen, humble yourselves, sit down, for your rule shall collapse, the crown of your glory. The cities of the south, or the Negev, is the desert area south of Jerusalem, shall be shut up, and no one shall open them. Judah shall be carried away captive, all of it. It shall be wholly carried away captive. He's saying there, not only is Jerusalem getting it, but even the desert. I mean, this is going to be a wipeout of all wipeouts. Lift your eyes, verse 20, and see those who come from the north. Where is the flock that was given to you, your beautiful sheep? Because remember, he's talking to a king and queen. What will you say when he punishes you? For you have taught them to be chieftains, to be head over you. Will not pang seize you like a woman in labor? And if you say in your heart, verse 22, why have these things come upon me? For the greatness of your iniquity, watch this. (sighs) 
you know, what's one of the greatest things that can happen to people sometimes in life or is one of the greatest relationships of life? It's husband and wife. And Judah here is like a bride to the Lord, but look what happens to Judah. Your skirts have been uncovered. Your heels made bared. In other words, his bride has become naked and is running with other people. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? This doesn't mean that one person's skin color or another person's skin color is better or worse. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means if you've been given one color to your skin, you're unable to change it or the leopard its spots. In other words, people have a problem. They can't change Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. Therefore, I will scatter them like stubble or chaff. The nation of Judah that passes away by the wilderness. Uh, This is your lot, the portion of your measures from me, says the Lord. Because you have forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. Therefore, watch this, I will uncover your skirts over your face that your shame may appear. The bride uncovered in that way. I've seen your adulteries and your lustful neighings, the lewdness of your harlotries, your abominations on the hills and the fields. Put a note there to see Lamentations 1.9. Woe to you, O Jerusalem. Look at this. Will you still not be made clean? Why won't you repent? God is in it for the best and for the <laughs> for the good of you, (laughs) for your health and your spiritual health. We've run through a linen sash that was beautiful, that was clinging to God, that goes in the ground and is dirty and broken and awful and all that sort of thing. And this, these bottles of wine supposed to be fruitful and fragrant and full of life that break each other up. And the beautiful mountains at the golden hour that turn dark into death And he speaks to royalty who come to nothing because they're not responsible and do what they should do. And he speaks of a bride that's supposed to be your pride and your joy and your anticipation and your love that shames herself. Will you still be made clean? It's the question for the ages. It's the question not only for Judah then, But it's for us, thankfully we've answered the question by saying we'll surrender our lives to Christ and repent. But it's answer, it's the question for the men and women, boys and girls out on the street. Will you be made clean? Will you repent? Will you come to him? Here's why. In Revelation 19, it says the bride will be wrapped up in fine linen. Did you know that Jesus took the cup of wrath, or wine, Matthew 26, then instituted a cup that enables us, the cup, the covenant of grace we celebrated here, that institutes salvation. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, golden hour. 
But not only am I the light of the world, Jesus says, you're going to be the light of the world. You know those rulers who weren't responsible and didn't listen and didn't lead their people in the ways of God? Hold on. All of you are running for crowns. You're part of a royal priesthood. And of course, do I even have to say it? We're his bride, and Jesus says he's going to present us faultless before the throne. Everything that the world and the enemy and our flesh are fighting to keep us away, to keep us down, to keep us in the worst category, God can take and will take and make the best out of it in every single way. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thanks. Wow. Amazing. (laughs) Sometimes we look at our situations. Maybe it's a family situation. Maybe it's a relationship situation. Maybe it's a financial situation. Spiritual situation or I don't know, anything. It could be a million things. We look at them and we say, there's no possible way. And yet, Lord, you're in the business of taking broken things that, the, that we would consider the worst and making them the absolute best. So, Lord, we just pray and uh, give over to you those things maybe that are in our lives that you don't want in our lives. Lord, help us to get them out. And Lord, maybe there's some things that you want in our lives that aren't currently in our lives, but Lord, help us to get them in. (laughs) And all the while, Lord, by your Spirit and by your grace, grow us and bring us into a place that you delight in. And that's beautiful and strong in a meek way, in a graceful way, in a merciful way, in a forgiving way to the world who's watching And Lord, should you tarry even longer than tonight, (laughs) because you could come at any time, Lord, help us to have gospel meetings with people that are orchestrated by you, and help us to walk through the doors that you open so that many would come to know you in a real and saving way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.